This week, Puerto Rico House Speaker warns PROMESA that plan of adjustment illegal without legislative approval, and Sackler family members testify in Purdue trial that settlement contingent on bankruptcy court approval of third-party releases. Hello and welcome to the Reorg Podcast, where we bring you the latest developments in high-yield distress debt and bankruptcy. I'm David Zubkis. Julian Boulan will be joining me for the Week in Review. Also this week, Basic Energy files for Chapter 11 for second time in five years with three stocking horse agreements in place. For this week's deep dive, we have a replay of a Reorg July webinar where America's Municipals coverage team discusses recent credit trends in continuing care retirement communities, or CCRCs, and also how the COVID-19 pandemic has affected the industry. It's Friday, August 20th. Puerto Rico's House representatives voted on Tuesday to approve a resolution establishing the conditions for the lower chamber to approve anticipated legislation related to the Puerto Rico Electric Power Authority's debt restructuring. In his opening remarks, House Speaker Rafael Tatito Hernandez of the majority popular Democratic Party noted that the session would likely entail consideration of legislation to implement a Commonwealth Plan of Adjustment, which contemplates the issuance of general obligation exchange bonds and the creation of contingent value instruments. Hernandez said that the session will be marked by fiscal matters and agreements that we are going to have to consider signing off on or not signing off on related to pensions and debt restructuring. Hernandez said that there could be no issuance of Commonwealth bonds without the approval of the legislature and said the PROMESA Oversight Board arguments the contrary made in the Title III court were wrong, and that any bond issuance, bond exchange, or transaction that the Oversight Board ratifies with the government without the approval of the legislature is illegal. Hernandez added that the legislature's prerogative on that front would need to be protected before lawmakers mull the pros and cons of a Commonwealth plan of adjustment and whether to support related legislation. It's very important for that issue to be put on the table, he said, before stating whether to approve something or not and what we will agree to in the process. PROMESA Oversight Board Member Antonio Medina signaled on Wednesday that he expects the current Puerto Rico Electric Power Authority restructuring support agreement to undergo changes, as he stated his opposition to provision in RSA that has been dubbed a sun tax by critics. Medina, who spoke to our Sunil Energy Crisis and Storage Conference in San Juan, said he cannot speculate on whether we end up with this RSA or whether it will be amended. But he added, I imagine it will have some changes. Medina said that there are a lot of good things in the RSA, while noting that there are some concerns as well in terms of ability to get agreements on it. Regarding the potential timeline for filing of a PREPA plan of adjustment, Medina anticipated that the Oversight Board would first be meeting very soon with the new Progressive Party, Pierre Lucy administration, and the popular Democratic Party-controlled legislature on the proposed Commonwealth Plan of Adjustment. He said some people believe that PREPA should be included as part of those negotiations. Some people believe it should be separate. Commonwealth officials announced on Wednesday that the refinancing of $1.8 billion of outstanding Puerto Rico Aqueduct and Sewer Authority, or PRAZA, 2012 revenue bonds will generate about $570 million in debt service savings over the life of the new financing. The new bonds have similar maturities to the refunded bonds, and debt service savings will be realized every year. The all-in interest cost of new issue, including insurance costs, is 3.24%, according to Commonwealth officials. The confirmation hearing for opioid manufacturer Purdue Pharma continued this week, featuring testimony from members of the Sackler family, which made billions from sales of the company's drugs. In April, the U.S. Committee on Oversight and Reform pegged the Sackler family's wealth at $11 billion, accumulated in large part through sales of OxyContin. Almost 841,000 people have died since 1999 from a drug overdose in the United States, and nearly a quarter of a million deaths were caused by overdoses related to prescription opioids alone, according to the CDC. David Sackler, for his part, insisted on Tuesday that the controversial third-party release in the debtor's plan is required for the Sackler family to make the roughly $4.3 billion in cash payments contemplated by the shareholder settlement agreement. Asked by the U.S. trustee if the family would still be willing to contribute money towards the settlement if the bankruptcy court does not approve the release, Sackler answered, no, not in this fashion. 
and that such a decision would result in a litigation posture. Dr. Richard Sackler on Wednesday said that he was seeking comprehensive peace through the third-party release. In response to questioning by Tad Robinson O'Neill, Assistant Attorney General for the State of Washington, Dr. Sackler confirmed that he would not agree to the settlement if the bankruptcy court were to allow the nine objecting states to opt out of the release. Sackler also stated that he does not yet know whether his personal assets will be sold to fund the shareholder settlement payments. Sackler also claimed to not recall many events covered by last year's civil settlement with the DOJ. Mortimer Sackler and Dr. Kathy Sackler, who each served on Purdue Pharma's board for nearly three decades, took the witness stand on the sixth day of the trial to testify on their involvement with the company and endorse the shareholder settlement. Mortimer Sackler fielded questions from Brian Edmonds, Assistant Attorney General for the State of Maryland, who asked the witness to confirm that he was a director and executive when Purdue made a guilty plea in 2007. Sackler said that he was, but added that even though he held the vice president title, he had quote-unquote no executive responsibility whatsoever. Edmonds noted that after the witness resigned from Purdue's board at the end of 2018, Purdue pleaded guilty again in 2020, this time to three federal felony counts for conduct that overlapped with the witness's tenure as a director. Of the 2020 plea, Sackler said that he was, quote, unbelievably shocked and disappointed that that had happened again, end quote. Dr. Kathy Sackler, when asked whether she believes she bears responsibility for the opioid crisis in the United States, said, quote, I don't believe that I have a legal responsibility, but I deeply feel the stress and recognize a moral responsibility that I do have and that we all have, end quote. Looking ahead to next week, Judge Robert Drain said that he hopes the parties will focus on some of the issues that were raised during the week's hearing with respect to the breadth of the release. The judge also said that he was not asking the parties to address carving parties out of the release, but instead to address some of the other issues that had been raised, such as releases for transferees that could be boundless and releases for or related to non-opioid activity. The confirmation hearing will resume on August 23rd with oral arguments. On Tuesday, Basic Energy Services filed for Chapter 11 in the Southern District of Texas with a debt load of approximately $438 million. This is the second time the company has filed for Chapter 11 in five years. Basic enters bankruptcy with three stocking horse asset purchase agreements for various groups of the company's assets after a pre-petition marketing process that yielded 10 indications of interest, including multiple bids for the debtor's California operations, water logistics business, and Delaware Basin assets. Basic has also received a commitment for $35 million in dip financing from certain members of an ad hoc committee of note holders that own or control approximately 67% of the senior secured notes. According to the first day declaration, the proposed dip financing, together with the use of cash collateral, is projected to allow the debtors to operate through October, and thereafter, the debtors intend to use sale proceeds resulting from the marketing process to administer their estates. Judge David Jones granted all requested first day relief, including interim approval of the $35 million dip facility. Presentations during the first day hearing by both the debtors and ad hoc group highlighted that one principal issue in the case will be how to address findings by independent board member and board special committee member Alan Carr that the debtor's issuance last March of $47.5 million in Maycole senior secured notes to ascribe capital is an avoidable transfer. Counsel for the ad hoc group of secured note holders stated that they were concerned that ascribe suffered from a conflict of interest and exercised undue influence and control over the company in its run-up to bankruptcy. The court has scheduled the bidding procedures hearing for August 24th at 2 p.m. Eastern. 
Kansas City United Methodist Retirement Home, Inc., also known as Kingswood Senior Living Community, a Kansas City, Missouri-based owner and operator of a Continuing Care Retirement Community, or CCRC, filed for Chapter 11 protection on Wednesday, August 18th, in the Bankruptcy Court for the Western District of Missouri. The debtor says that it filed to restructure its debt related to series 2016 revenue bonds issued by the Kansas City Industrial Development Authority and has filed a plan in DS pursuant to a plan support agreement entered into with a preponderant majority of bondholders. The Kingswood Senior Living Community organized in 1972 as a Missouri nonprofit corporation spans roughly 30 acres and serves about 275 residents. The debtor has 185 employees. The company reports 49.9 million in assets and 91.1 million in liabilities, net of accumulated amortization of non-refundable entrance fees, deferred financing costs, and original issue premium. The debtor says the filing was precipitated by increasing financial distress from slowed new occupancies and resulting cash flow shortfalls, which was greatly exacerbated by the impact of the COVID-9 pandemic leading to default on their Series 2016 bonds. Under the plan, the existing Series 2016 bonds would be allowed in the aggregate amount of $56.4 million plus unpaid fees and expenses incurred through the petition date. It would be exchanged for a ratable share in Series 2021B bonds in the principal amount of $27 million and Series 2021D bonds in the principal amount of $12.1 million. Any deficiency claims would be waived on the effective date. The debtor would also issue Series 2021A new money bonds for working capital in the principal amount of $5.5 million and Series 2021C new money bonds for capital improvements in the principal amount of 4.4 million. Resident refund claims, which consist of all refunds of entrance fees due prior to or after the effective date pursuant to residency agreements, would be paid in full pursuant to the applicable residency agreements. The debtors are targeting a confirmation date of November 8th with a planned effective date of November 15th. The first day hearing is scheduled for today, August 20th. Top red stories this week included talent energy creditors begin to organize as company evaluates liability management proposals. Judge finds Trimark minority lenders assert viable claims against up-tier lenders under sacred rights provisions, make plausible argument exchange required unanimous consent, torch interference claims against sponsors Centerbridge and Blackstone dismissed. Debtor side with parent creditors Intel sat Jackson guarantee claim fight, say Jackson no holders new parental guarantees would never be actually called, had no value. Akhtar claimants motion for stay of claims orders pending appeal denied. Process for resolving administrative Akhtar pricing claims uncertain after RSA parties suggest legality of post-emergence price is crucial to confirmation. Judge Phillips seals Intel sat hearing an SES claim summary judgment motions over UST objections. And now here's Jim from Houston with the week ahead. Well, good morning, all, and thanks for being here as we descend into the dog days of August with 100-degree temperatures and thunderstorms daily in the state of Texas, which is how we like it. Anyways, there are some happenings this week, never fear, starting with Monday, August 23rd. Confirmation trial of opioid manufacturer Purdue Pharma continues. Last week featured testimony from various members of the Sackler family, which of course owned Purdue and became very, very, very wealthy from the sale of its products. Tuesday, August 24th, in Fieldwood, there is a hearing on a motion to quash. Certainly sounds interesting. Also, a status conference in Washington Prime, and Purdue continues. Wednesday, August 25th, earnings from Denberry Resources, Status Conference in Mallincrote, and Purdue again. Thursday, August 26th, yes, you guessed it, Purdue is scheduled to continue, and Friday looks like an empty slate. That is all for me. Thank you for being here, and back to New York. 
And next up, we have a replay of a Reorg July webinar where America's Municipals Coverage Team discusses recent credit trends in continuing care retirement communities, or CCRCs, and also how the COVID-19 pandemic has affected the industry, from advanced Medicare payments to bond covenants, occupancy rates, days cash on hand, and debt service coverage ratios. Today, we're going to discuss continuing care retirement communities, or CCRCs for short. I'm Patrick Mohan, a Senior Legal Analyst for America's Municipals by Reorg. Joining me on today's webinar is Seth Brumby, our Deputy Managing Editor for America's Municipals. Um, please note that if you'd like access to this webinar again later, a replay with slides will be available on the Reorg site in the webinars and podcast sections later today for Reorg clients. Today, we're going to provide an overview of recent uh, municipal credit trends and CCRCs, including a review of recent primary issuances, defaulted credits, and Chapter 11 filings. We'll also answer questions at the end, so please feel free to submit your questions at any time using the Q&A widget located on the bottom of your screen. So let's get started. Seth, would you like to start with the introduction? Sure. Thank you, Patrick. It's a pleasure to be here this morning with everybody. Hope you're, everyone is enjoying their summer, too. Um, Reorg has been spending some time in the municipal market, and one of the sectors that has come to our attention is uh, senior living. Um, this includes a bunch of different assets. Uh, what we'll be focused on today is continuing care retirement communities. And very simply, um, these provide a continuum of care for uh, aging citizens. And it starts with an independent living um, with a second uh, level of care, whether that's um, assisted living, memory care, or uh, skilled nursing. Um, revenue sources are largely derived from entrance fees um, and monthly fees tied to certain levels of healthcare. Uh, sometimes that healthcare can be capped and sometimes it's unlimited. Um, whether it's capped or unlimited is often uh, a layer of credit analysis uh, that investors will need to do into individual credits. Um, but very simply, this is just how people decide to um, uh, go about their end of life care. Um, and how they foresee um, their living conditions as well as the health care that they feel like they will need. Um, I guess just going through very quickly uh, some of the risks inherent in this market. Um, you know, when we think about healthcare, care, uh, particularly for uh, an aging population, um, we do want to take a look at things like uh, payers, um, whether or not uh, uh, care is being reimbursed by Medicare or Medicaid or both programs um, or private payer or even supplemental. Um, but probably the biggest risk here is actually real estate. Um, I remember when I was covering this sector about 10 years ago, uh, it was very simple and straightforward. Coming out of the housing crisis, uh, what we needed to know more than anything was whether or not a potential citizen in a CCRC um, could sell their existing home uh, to produce the entrance fee that they would need to get into a CCRC. Um, this current cycle, um, and I think we're entering a cycle with CCRCs, is, is, is a bit different. Um, and we'll go through that throughout uh, the slides here. Um, but just moving on to capitalization, um, when we think about these projects, we need to think about a couple of things, whether or not they're new projects or they're existing, um, whether or not that project um, is an expansion, um, and how are they expanding? Is it just independent living units or is it some other level of care? So as you look through the various deals that have come to market, um, those are some broad strokes of, uh, of the frame of mind that investors will require. Um, and then finally, you know, the coronavirus has uh, had an, uh, broad impacts across all capital markets and all economies and demographics too. 
And uh, it's still, we still quite don't know how it's going to shake out. I have a feeling it'll be an evolving effect on this particular asset class, uh, but we'll be walking through maybe some of those permutations here. Sure, and, and for um, just kind of overlooking um, CCRCs as well is, you know, kind of looking at the, the amount of just the campuses themselves, right? I think, you know, one of the things, these are large um, property intensive projects, right? A lot of them are, I mean, I think you're seeing like 20, 30, 40 acres, right? That Because you, you need a large um, facility, right? You need a large space to kind of house all these different types of, um, of units and, and, and offerings and services. Yeah, that's true too. And, and also keep in mind that, um, you know, most CCRCs draw their populations locally. Um, I think most residents come within uh, 15 or 20 miles of a given project, uh, which means if, you, if you're going to have a project in uh, rural areas, um, that could be a significant credit risk because those areas are very underserved. Um, whereas, uh, you know, I believe it's the mid-Atlantic and the southeastern regions are very strong in the sense that they can draw from those populations. But do keep in mind that CCRCs are not destinations. Um, very few people are going to pick up from, you know, let's say, you know, New York State and then move down to Texas to a CCRC. Um, that's, that's not quite as common as you might think. Again, most CCRCs draw from their local population. And yeah, they do need a lot of acreage too. Um, and not only do they need that, but they need uh, certain amenities. Um, these aren't just cottages. Um, they also provide, you know, some healthcare. They also have dining halls. Um, any kind of amenities like uh, gyms or um, extracurricular and social activities too, um, that also will go into your credit analysis as well. Um, if you do have a competitive environment, um, you want to make sure that um, you're investing in a facility that can compete for those residents. Good point. Um, well, I think we're going to transi transition to our next slide and, and kind of maybe Seth, if you'd cover some, you know, some of the primary trends uh, with primary issuances. Yeah, um, you know, so in, in kind of going back to the larger theme about um, the, the current environment, particularly as it pertains to financing, um, as we've seen in, in, in recent news, you know, uh, fixed income rates across all fixed income asset classes are at historic heights. Um, and the municipal market is no different. In fact, the municipal market, um, as, as we can see um, for average spreads for just CCRC as well, I'll get into in a moment. But just broadly speaking, inflows are in the first half of 21 uh, was a record, according to Refinitiv Lipper at 56 billion. Um, the supply of paper has not caught up with that uh, demand. So, you know, what you have is um, an environment which, you know, any credit analyst or trader might call frothy. And as a result, um, we need to have extra discretion in when we take a look at CCRCs. Um, CCRCs, for those that are new to the municipal market, um, it's, they're largely unrated, which means the rating agencies aren't going to give you um, that high-level view of the credit. Um, most of them, uh, you need to do your own due diligence on those. Um, but just in, in terms of looking at market activity now, um, municipal high yield municipal bonds like CCRCs have similar issues that high yield corporate credits do. Um, if you look at the deals that have so far been done this year and comparing them against um, the risk free rate, you know, a 10 year CCRC bond, and this is going across about 16 or 17 deals so far done first half of 21, are 121 basis points wide of the risk free rate, 20 years, 260. And then going out on, on the 30, on, on the, the long part of the curve, um, 153 basis points. So it's very tight. Um, and, you know, I think that's reflective largely of the rest of the municipal market, too. 
Um, when we look at things like the muni treasury ratio, um, this goes to show that municipals um, are expensive when compared to buying a treasury bond. Um, you know, the lower your, your municipal treasury ratio, the more expensive municipal bonds are relative to buying treasuries. So right now, um, you know, that's at 70% and that's down from 115% this time last year when we were in the throes of a market sell-off. Um, I think next we're going to kind of look at, uh, I think a recent trend on our, our next slide, kind of just covering some, some recent default and defaulted credits and issues. Um, you know, I, I think for the covenant defaults that we've seen, uh, the most common are occupancy, uh, DSCR uh, for debt service, um, now, the DSCR, days cash on hand, marketing, um, and we've seen a number of them. But I think in, in previous years, you've seen more of a mix, um, I think, of missed payments versus technical defaults. But I think with COVID, um, you've seen kind of, I feel like it's it's even almost. You've seen a, a really kind of a widespread of um, occupancy has been really hard. And, and marketing, also, you kind of see with, with kind of how these facilities are trying to um, kind of offset or counter, counter counteract what's going on with COVID. Um, you know, at recent examples um, for, for occupancy, um, you know, I'm trying to think, um, Vista Grand Villa and, and Buckingham. Um, if we start with Vista Grand Villa, it's a recent, right, a recent issue um, where they missed their recent debt payment. I think it was April. Um, but also one of the things they tried to do was they tried, they, they really kind of failed um, to, to get a consent solicitation, right? So, um, in, in trying to work these situations out, um, it, it's a shame that kind of they weren't able to achieve that. Um, but now they're kind of operating under a forbearance agreement. Um, and sorry, I'm just, my computer just froze up. Yeah, it's, the consent solicitations are, are interesting in municipal bond market. Um, it's because the holdings are so fragmented, it can be hard to get a consensus amongst your bondholders. Um, I will say that largely in this sector, it's institutional bondholders, but you still get a fair amount of retail that might be exposed to CCRs through separately managed accounts and, and private wealth managers. Um, so when you're looking across creditor classes, it is important to consider, okay, who else is sitting with me in this capital stack? Are they going to be a little more on the active side or are they kind of passive and maybe don't even know that they hold those bonds? So when you're going out and trying to get bondholders on board for a certain initiative, um, do you try and understand who might be the other bondholders? And, and Patrick, just to go to what you were talking about earlier with regard to marketing occupancy covenants, um, it's important to note that during COVID, we saw a huge fall off in occupancy rates. Um, historically, independent living occupancy has been over 90%. Um, but we saw since the beginning of 2020, that fall by almost uh, 700, eight, maybe even 800 basis points in certain markets. So whereas you had an average stabilization of around 90%, you're now risking you know, market-wide having an unstable occupancy rate of the high 70s, low 80%. So that's important to keep in mind that just broadly speaking, it's gonna take a lot of work to get people back in CCRCs. Um, and knowing that you have occupancy rates hovering at you know, high 70s, low 80s, the amount of, uh, of, of inventory coming online too is going to further depress that amount. So just broadly speaking, um, keep in mind that occupancy rates have a long time to catch up with the historic highs. Right. And, and for the DSCRs, also one trend we've seen are PPP funding, right? COVID funding, right? I mm -hmm. think we've kind of been, they've been bolstered by, by the COVID fund, by that money, right? So in the sense that you're kind of almost masking some of those issues. And I think particularly it's helpful when you think about their, and we'll, we'll touch on it a little bit next, is that 
um, you know, PPP issues that, that people were dealing with when trying to apply in bankruptcy versus the ability to get PPP loan funding ahead of bankruptcy or when you're heading into a, a, a distressed situation. Because, um, you know, like a recent example, um, and I think it was Vista Grand Villa, they were talking about their DSCR wasn't enough. It was enough with the PPP funding. But when you took it out, you know, they were in a technical default um, scenario. Um, yeah. And so, so the regulatory, you know, overhang of this market, um, you know, that's a great point about PPP funding, um, any kind of uh, Medicare and Medicaid reimbursement. Keep in mind, too, that federal regulations in, 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 the, in the federal environment created for CCRCs is just one layer of regulations. Um, you need to really dig into the local place, too. You know, what's your barrier for entry? Um, how difficult is it to get a certificate of need in your local market? You know, as you're looking at investing in this space, you really need to dig locally, too, not just federally. And, and kind of, I guess, talking about forbearance agreements, I thought an interesting um, kind of a good one to talk about is Hillside Village. Um, Hillside Village, I think they kind of went through the forbearance, but also they're eventually having, you know, working together for, to, for, to pursue a planned sale. Right. Mm -hmm. And that kind of will transition to what we're talking about next, where they would look to consummate that sale through bankruptcy. So you're seeing kind of different. I think different avenues for different, it depends on kind of what your default really is. You know, we've seen a number of them where you have some technical default on, you know, your ratio, your DSCR, and then, but they also have this tremendous amount of cash on hand, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's, you're kind of, some of them are a little, um, you know, they don't necessarily meet just because you, you have a technical default on one doesn't mean you're heading to kind of a, kind of a really, you know, you're going to lead into bankruptcy. It just means sometimes things just have to you know, you, you have to kind of sit, take a step back and almost like reset um, to how you're looking at these. Um, yeah, you know, I, I really want to see how that hillside sale transaction uh, pans out and what the cap rates might be on that. Um, I'm, I'm sure anybody who's familiar with just commercial real estate in general, um, cap rates for, you know, nonprofits broadly are typically much tighter than they are for for-profits because of the inherent tax exemption and tax arbitrage you get there. But, you know, whether or not you have the tax exemption or not, that still makes your asset more expensive. You know, a cap rate of 5% is more expensive than one of 10%. So I'd be interested to see how that hillside sale uh, pans out. And, and actually, we can go to, let's, we should go ahead to go to the next slide, kind of start looking at kind of names. Um, and these are just kind of key issues that you kind of see that show up all um, in, in, in each of these cases. You know, you're, you're going to deal with your entrance fees, right? So um, a lot of the times a typical first day motion would be, um, making sure you have some form of escrow for oh, are you, uh, yeah, some form of escrow for um, the entrance fees. And then there's, there's kind of that line of demarcation, right? You have your older um, entrance fees, you have the, the current residents, and then you want to make sure you have the new entrance fees that are coming in post-petition, um, the structure of how you're going to escrow them. I think um, a recent case, Amsterdam House was, was good because, you know, they, they kind of talked about um, the situation. They, I'm sorry, I'm muted. They had that set out ahead of time um, where they were going to basically honor um, their existing um, entrance fee. Oh, I'm sorry, I should go to that point. Um, the big thing is also, Seth, I don't know if you want to talk about this a little bit, but entrance fee refunds, kind of how those are structured, right? Because that's kind of the, one of the issues where you have the structure of a CCRC um, where you pay this entrance fee up front, but there's also a portion of it that eventually could, I mean, you can go to your estate. Um, you know, and, and kind of if you don't actually live in the facility, there's also that that potential for a refund. Yeah, if, if memory serves me correctly, there used to be a practice in the market where if you were a resident and you wanted to leave, um, you know, you were pretty much guaranteed uh, to get a refund back within 18 months. Um, that's no longer the case anymore. And 
again, this is going back to some restructurings that occurred uh, during the last cycle. Um, but I seem to recall there was a restructuring in Chicago for the uh, Claret Water Tower, where in the early stages of the case, there was a dispute over entrance fees and whether or not they could serve as collateral for creditors. Um, you know, the, the judge there, in my mind, came down on the right side of that and said, no, they actually belong to the residents. Um, but, you know, these are things that we do need to think about. Um, you know, if, if we take a look at those, those entrance fees, too, um, in, in, a, in a situation where everything is normal and going okay, those entrance fees do go down to paying for bonds. I've seen a couple of structures occur this year already. Um, they're called TEMPS. Um, uh, gosh, I can't remember the acronym. Um, Tax-exempt mandatory pay-down securities. Um, where the bonds are essentially paid down within five years using those entrance fees. And that's just everything goes well. Um, so it's, it's, it's no mystery that bondholders might think that those entrance fees are, are their collateral if they're used to pay down so quickly um, the senior obligations in the capital stack. But once you get into restructuring, that changes. Um, and I think we saw that during the last cycle too. So just be aware of that. I think um, the, the, that that case is that's the Claire Oaks case. Is that where kind of? Where I think it became Claire Oaks, correct? Right. Yeah, I think it was originally called Claire Water Tower. Yeah, and that was because that's actually also something that um, Claire Oaks recently exited, um, and then it was kind of talking. I think their plan went effective in November, um, but also recently, kind of based on if we're talking about the impact of COVID, um, I think they ran into a situation where COVID was um, they were they were kind of running challenges with their operational expenses, and then so basically. They, I think they recently obtained some sort of um, a bridge loan or a bridge advance um, um, from their lenders like post exit um, because because the challenges of COVID are still there. And, and yeah. so it was kind of a kind of a unique situation. Um, also, you know, uh, but like talking about a case like Buckingham, right? Buckingham started out um, earlier this year as, as, as a forbearance situation. You know, they couldn't make they couldn't maintain their DSCR. Um, mm -hmm. I think then the point based on the forbearance agreement, they weren't making interest, um, any interest payments. And then they also tie in COVID again, they ran into a, a port, like if you have one of these communities, if you have a COVID outbreak, it's also kind of something that can kind of shape, it can be, a, you know, kind of lead to further distress because I think what you were talking about in the beginning, you're making this choice and, and you kind of to ha have your family there. And I think some people have been actually opting to almost stay home, right? Stay, live with family, um, and, and kind of versus um, kind of going to one of these communities. Yeah, and I'm, you know, I'm going to stick my neck out there and predict that that decision um, is, is not going to go away anytime soon. I think when people saw how COVID unfolded in retirement communities and how devastating it was to the aging population, um, you know, I think there's going to be an extra layer of thought and care and consideration for whether or not people want to go uh, live in a retirement community, knowing very well that they might be isolated to the extent that COVID comes back and some other variant. Um, and, and I think that there's probably a push for more home health care at this point in time. And I, I don't think that dynamic is going to go away. And this goes back to what I had mentioned earlier, you know, during the last cycle, it was pretty straightforward what the credit risks were. It was, can you sell your home for an entrance fee to get into a CCRC? Um, Nowadays, fast forward, and we have a very tight housing market. Um, so maybe selling your home is not the big deal. But the question is, do you want to move into a CCRC or do you want to maybe move in with your children so that you know you can be by them? Um, I, I, I think that that consideration is, is a long term one. It's here to stay. Right. And, and, and I think here you're kind of also um, I, I guess the one positive thing is a lot. Of, I would say most of the time in, in terms of um, 
chapter 11 in bankruptcy, you know, here, um, no one, you have a change maybe in management, a change in who's running the facility. But I think if for, for a lot of these, I, I don't think um, the residents may actually, you know, I think it's, it's kind of the transition's almost seamless, right? It's kind of more of just what's happening on um, the balance sheet versus what's happening in the facility. Um, so it's just kind of, I, I think that's a positive, but I, I think you're right. I think those challenges are here, particularly in this housing market, um, you know, because I think that we kind of saw these um, kind of happen probably at the late 2000s. Right, right, kind of, kind of the challenges of the real estate market there. You had a hot real estate market, and then kind of leading into the recession, and then um, you know I, I think we've seen kind of your I think the last year you're talking about probably 2016, 2017, mm-hmm. and then a little bit in 2019 pre-COVID. So um, I think those are kind of some of the challenges that we, we've been seeing. Um, and then I'm trying to think if let me see. Um, and then for for yeah, for Claire Oaks, um, that was kind of the one I was talking about. Kind of just just checking my notes real quick. Um, they, you know, they kind of really ran into an issue with COVID. Um, they had increased expenses, um, and then decreased entrance fees due to COVID. So, um, it was just kind of interesting to see a post-effective date situation of, of kind of how they were dealing post-restructuring where COVID still kind of looms and affects, um, kind of how that kind of affects them operationally. Um, yeah. so, you know, I, I think it's, it's kind of good to see these situations, um, to kind of put them on the radar. Yeah, and, and one thing, Patrick, to point out too, um, this is something that we haven't touched on yet, and this could probably deserve its own webinar, but uh, a big issue facing all CCRCs, no matter you know how good your occupancy is or how strong your project is, um, is staffing. Um, I, I think one of the larger concerns um, uh, is whether or not the actual management um, can bring on the necessary personnel to provide care and, and, and just manage the property. I think that's probably the number one concern at this point for all CCRCs across the industry is, you know, can they recruit and retain the talent um, to, to work and employ and serve the communities there? Um, that's a very, that's a huge problem right now. But I think you, you, I, you know, one thing that's evident when you start looking through the chapter, the first day declarations, right? You see the land that's required to operate these, the units that are required, and then the staffing, right? So they could have 200, 250 residents, but they also may need 200 and 250 employees. You know, because these are these are campuses. There's also health facilities. You have the meal component. You know, and, and so there's a whole kind of army of people. So I think that is a challenge um, that you you have to be aware of. Um, kind of, are you able to staff them? Um, yeah. Because you could have again, you could have the greatest facility in the world, but if you don't have staff, then it, it presents those challenges where either you have to turn people away. You can only it reduces the ability um, of the occupants you can take on. Um, so I think I think that's a great point. Um, well, thanks, Seth, for part of, for for the presentation. And I think right now we're going to um, that this concludes the slide portion of our presentation, and we're going to switch over to the uh, Q and A portion. So let's see what's come in so far. Um, first one, um, it's kind of a general question: are, are the bulk of distressed CCRCs a result of COVID nineteen? Um, I think we we touched on this in the beginning. Um, this distressed CCs just distressed CCRCs are not new. Um, you know, I think in, in, we had a wave of them in the most recent wave before COVID um, was 2019. I think there were, there were a number of them in Texas. Um, and so we saw them there. Um, and then I, I think the really, we also had another big cycle, I think, in right, probably late 2000s. Yeah, yeah. I mean, these are, um, it's a high yield sector, unrated sector uh, for a reason. Um, so we, we've seen it come in, in boom and bust areas too with the exposure to real estate. Um, plus with how volatile healthcare can be, um, politically especially. Um, I, I think that's just one of those sectors that 
has never really felt in, comfortable in the investment grade world. That said, there are investment grade CCRCs out there. But if you talk to any high yield municipal bond analyst, you know, even if it's an A rated deal, um, it's still going to be handled by their high yield analysts. So, uh, you know, this is is a sector that has never really quite made it into that world where people have felt um, entirely safe holding these bonds. Right. And I'd say, you know, COVID probably is either more of an accelerant, right, in the mm-hmm. sense of if, 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 if a CCRC already has structural challenges. I mean, two of the recent filings aren't necessarily, uh, again, COVID was, was an issue, but it wasn't all the only factor. Um, I think, you know, uh, Buckingham, I think um, Amsterdam, right, that was uh, based on, um, I think it was, right, that was, had an issue, um, no, it was, it was a Buckingham, um, was it Hurricane Harvey, I think w- was kind of an issue there, um, and, and so, um, yeah, and there was a disruption for Hurricane Harvey, um, you know, Amsterdam, I, I think, Seth, you talk, we were talking about this as a prior restructuring, they had issues. Um, Amsterdam is one of those examples of, if you're in a really higher-end market, it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to have any better uh Credit standards. Um, you know, Amsterdam and Harborside. I think it's in Nassau County. Um, you know, one of the more expensive zip codes in the U.S. I, I want to say entrance fees there were probably on the high end of over four hundred thousand dollars. So um, they always had issues with occupancy, um, and I don't think that those ever really went away. So do keep in mind of what the real estate environment is like, and, and just because you're in a, a high end zip code doesn't necessarily mean people will will still attend your facilities. Sure. Um, we have a question um, for, from the audience. It seems like the trend of CCRC restructuring is increasingly gravitating towards restructuring and workouts, such, such as Buckingham and Amsterdam, versus sales changes of control. Do you have any idea why? Um, well, I, I think sale transactions are, are hard to do in the municipal world. Um, it's, it's hard to repurpose and recharacterize uh, assets that have tax-exempt financing. Um, you know, it's it's... And, and, and the market is also very limited, too. And, and the regulations around that as well, I, I think that all of those combined makes uh, a distressed sale difficult. That said, you can pull it off. Um, and uh, I, I know that when Claire, Claire at Water Tower went through its restructuring, it, it was picked up in bankruptcy through a sale process. Um, I, I probably need to dust off how that process went. But you can do sale transactions. But by and large, you have to maintain the purpose of that facility and of course, you have to maintain the taxism status too. Right. And, and I think that that's a good point. Also, I mean, a, a lot of these sales, I mean, they may even, like we were talking about Hillside before, right? They may eventually wind up through the bankruptcy process to try to get some of the advantages of bankruptcy. But um, this is kind of another consideration that we see. Um, here's another question. Uh, can you talk a little bit about deal structure and whether financing for new development or refunding refinancing of, of existing developments? Well, they're finding, oh, so the financing is for new development or refunding or refinancing of existing. So just talk about kind of deal structure. Sure. Um, let's see. I, I think uh, just broadly speaking, there is, it, this is all according to Muni OS 2, um, where, we, where we take a look at the primary market. But I think there were 17 or 18 deals this year. Um, all but a handful were in the second quarter. Um, and I want to say even half of them started at the beginning of June. Um, so the, the spate of new deals that have come in have been fairly recent. Most of them have been expansion projects. Uh, I, I don't really recall seeing a lot of new development. Um, when you have an expansion project, though, keep in mind that 
you want to make sure that the expansion has with it the independent living residents that will eventually feed into your continuum of care. If your expansion project is just assisted living, um, that could be an issue because it might mean you might need to draw from outside of your independent living pool, which is hard to do. Um, you know, going back to, to the earlier comments too about the real estate market, you know, all of CCRCs is really dependent on occupancy. Um, and that is obviously dependent on whether or not um, potential residents can sell their existing homes. So housing supply is tight um, and therefore they might be able to generate those entrance fees. Um, but again, those questions of whether or not people actually, that's how they want to see their end of life care and end of life living standards evolve. Um, again, that's a question that I don't think is going away. As a result, um, what that looks like in financing structures, you know, I, I'd keep my eye out for those uh, temps kind of structures that I had mentioned earlier. Um, in my experience and in my mind, when you see a temp structure, what that is is essentially bondholders looking for some kind of enhancement. And it's typically, you know, you have a, a you know a thirty-year term bond, um, but you'll also have some securities that um, are, are are structurally senior in the sense that they get paid down earlier using those entrance fees. Um, and in my mind, that is a form of enhancement. And I, we saw one of those with recently with, um, I want to say, a Mayflower expansion. Mayflower is a, is a well-established community in um, Orlando, Florida. Uh, and there was another one out in California. Um, the name has escaped me. I'm, I'm really sorry. But uh, if you go into Munio West, you can find it there as a California financing authority. Um, so for whatever it's worth, Lots of new deals, um, but I also want to say that it looks like bondholders are looking um, for some enhancements. Okay, and I think um, this is our final question. What do you see as greater threat to new issuances for CCRCs? Hesitancy of residents and occupancy rates or staffing shortages? I mean, it's, it's really both. You have to, you have to do both. Um, you know, occupancy, as we had mentioned, is down near where your stabilization either makes it or breaks it. You know, 80%, if, if, if you can't get over that 80% line in your facility, you don't have stabilization. That's a problem. Um, in the sense that industry-wide, across all geographies and all asset types, is hovering around those low 80s. Um, that's something that we really need to keep an eye on. And, uh, you know, as, as far as um, you know, staffing is concerned, that's something that the marketing department at a CCRC can handle. And, and I do advise people when they're looking at new deals, take a look at the track record of that marketing department. How well have they performed um, for other CCRCs too? And, you know, depending on how well they performed is going to depend, is, is it largely will influence the talent that they can attract. Um, so I, I think that's probably the best way to look at the staffing challenges. What is the historical track record of the team managing the facility. Thanks, Seth. Um, okay, well, that's all the questions we have time for today. As a reminder, Reorg is a global provider of credit intelligence, data, and analytics for law firms, investors, and advisors. We've expanded our dedicated munis team and now we're covering more than 150 municipal coverage names. Please send any further questions you have on municipals or other topics to customer success at reorg.com. Remember, a replay with slides will be available on the Reorg webinars and podcast page within 24 hours. A big thanks to everyone who joined us today, as well as my fellow pan panelist, Seth Brumby. Thank you and have a good day. Thank you, everyone. Bye-bye. Thank you again for listening to this Reorg Weekly Review. Find all our podcasts on the Reorg.com webinars and podcast page, as well as Spotify, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Hope your families are healthy and safe. Have a great weekend and see you next Friday.